Well, good evening, everybody. And it's another conversation with Agility by Nature and I'm Ian Gill. Very much looking forward to today's guest. He's a software developer and he's been doing it for a long time and he has been at the cutting edge of software development practices throughout. Um, he's currently Deputy VP of Engineering at TES Global. He's studying for an MBA. I believe he's a, a martial arts expert, but we're both discussing how perhaps lockdown has constrained our health and fitness uh, regimens lately. Today's guest is Stephen Cresswell. Hi, Stephen. Hello. How are you doing? I'm very good. Thank you. Um, so, you know, uh, will you be getting back to your double black belt karate or uh, is that, uh, that going to be yeah, I, a bit longer? I, I think I need to, to qualify that statement because if anybody else finds out I've, I've been labelled a martial arts expert, I'll be, I'll be in for trouble. It's, it's very much a, <laughs> uh, a past, pastime. Um, but now I have, I have been, I suppose I, I picked up Brazilian jiu-jitsu when I was working for The Guardian back in 2008. And I did that for roughly five years and it's a, it's a wonderful sport. Um, in terms of, it strangely relates to Agile quite well because unlike, say, say some of the other martial arts, you can't really do jujitsu alone. You have to be there wrestling with somebody and you get instant feedback. And so it kind of aligns to Agile and pet programming quite well. Um, and it's also a, a, a very similar sort of mindset. So the, the thing when you go and train at BJJ, you can't necessarily um, see what's going on from all angles. And so whereas in a, a karate class, everybody would be lined up in rows and following an instructor or the person in front of them. With BJJ, if you can't see what's going on, you stand up, you walk around, you, you look at things from a different perspective. Um, and so I, it kind of fit quite naturally and I, I loved it um, and ended up unfortunately hurting my back and so stopped as a consequence of that. <laughs> well, I, I, I was never that 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 talented at any of these. And by the way, it was Simon Voice, which we just did. We just yeah, yeah, that, Simon Voice that, 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 who dobbed uh, you in on the, on the karate. Um, just snooping through your um, LinkedIn profile, which I like to do. I like to have a good look around. Um, you've done a great deal of things. I mean, you, you started with Fujitsu mainframes. Was that mainframe? Oh yeah. Really? Yeah, absolutely. That was fantastic. So I was at university and I'd, I'd chosen to do a, a course with a sandwich year. Yeah. Um, and so year three, ICL in Manchester, um, went in there and we were dealing with, there was a, an op operating system called VME on a Series 39 mainframe. And this would have been about 1995, I think. And so you, you could think that you know, they were, they're irrelevant, but in actual fact, we've come full circle. If you think about containerization, um, yeah. virtual sessions, etc., those are all things that existed in mainframes in a, in a slightly different form. You'd have sessions there. Yeah. Um, I suppose the other things about mainframes are uh, some things were done incredibly well. So we were, I was working on the, the source control system. Um, lots of version management, different programs had to operate at, at different uh, versions with each other in compatibility. You, you had a system for managing all of that, which is way in advance of, of what we see nowadays. If, if you've got a, a gem file or a package JSON or something like that, yeah. it's blurred out the water. Um, and probably the other thing that I, I got from that is that right, some of the, these programs would have been 10,000 lines long. And it was an 80 character screen. And so the only way you could actually go through them is you had to print them out and you, you could spend days just reading through source code. And once you've, once you spent days reading through some mainframe source code, I think you can, you can pretty much understand any program. <laughs> I think Chris Pitt started with mainframes as well. Uh, yeah. you, I think you know quite well, uh, but you know, it's interesting how now if I go on site, it's much but certainly retail if i hear the word mainframe that now it seems to be the they're anchored to a mainframe and they're constrained by it but frightened of it and can't get rid of it so is that something you're seeing now is it the mainframe nearly over or is it still hanging on? well um i haven't i haven't worked with mainframes since since then almost I'll get into retail um, but it's yeah, but, but it's yeah, it's certainly a problem it's not just mainframes um one of the clients um, while I was with Guidesmith had uh, an issue with some technology which was uh, from the 90s and, and probably should have stayed there 
um, and were having huge trouble getting off it. Yeah. Um, you couldn't, you can't find programmers who would know this system. Nobody would want to um, to learn it because it's a dead end um, and wasn't as widely used as some of the mainframes. And so the the pool of developers would have been even smaller. Yeah. So you, you mentioned GuySmith, uh, and you were the founder of GuySmith. I, I know you've moved on and it was holding share, but a very successful uh, company. And that followed, I think, your your software. So you were eight years independent as well, and uh, yeah. working quite a lot of. Um, you coached Deutsche Bank, trained Apple, which I thought was quite interesting. Yeah. Uh, you coached <laughs> Deutsche Bank in Agile, um, and then the Lean Healthcare stuff. And I get the smell. This is 2006 XP project for Network Rail. This is where you're really getting away yeah. from the mainframes, and you're really hitting your Agile engineering job. Um, uh, well, I'll, I'll move on to the the Network Rail because that's an interesting story. But just just to clear up, the co-founder of Guidesmith, I wouldn't want to do my business partner out of his um, out of his juice. Um, so yeah, the my first encounter with agile was as you rightly said network uh, network rail which is the also the first job i think i got through no i, I met simon while i was there yeah I, I didn't get that through simon uh and it was my first contract um went into it kind of kind of blind and it was a, a huge shock so at, at the time network rail were heavily waterfall like i uh, like you couldn't believe um it was almost based on what you can imagine to be a, a civil service uh, like a, a really really old civil service process where um, we would have something like 12 inch thick specific uh, application specifications for what they wanted us to build all typed in a particular format um, and just really thrown over the wall by a team of BAs who are producing these things that were intelligible. You, you, you couldn't read them. Yeah. And I think very, very luckily that the team there were rebellious. Um, and so there were a couple of people that looked at this stuff and said, no way, we're not doing it like this. And somehow um, we, I, I think nobody noticed until it was too late or they managed to get clearance and I never found out. Um, but, the, but the thing at the time was that I would, I'd come from a, a traditional systems integrator. So I was begin to writing not quite as dry specifications as that. I had uh, no concept of test-driven development. Uh, I'd heard about Agile and just thought, what a load of nonsense. Really? And, and so I was, I was one of the detractors. I was looking at this and thinking, you, you guys are a bunch of cowboys. Um, and to the point where I was, I was probably arrogant and rude I, I think I would I would class that as and, and I, I still remember the sensation of like, arguing with these people and then running out of argument and then gradually seeing things work like, you, you can't really deny that if test-driven development can be incredibly effective at helping you write readable maintainable um, well abstracted code yeah and you get to this stage where I can still feel the sensation where you, you just start to get hot and you start to feel like you're, you're burning. And, and that's the sensation of humiliation when you realize that you've like, you, you put yourself on a pedestal, your, your ego is, is there and you've got nowhere else to hide knowing that uh, you're, you're wrong and you've been arguing. And that actually a lot of the stuff that you've been doing maybe for the last five years has been suboptimal. And I think the like, the only sensible thing to do in that situation is to you know, admit it and then to change direction. Yeah. Um, and this is a, if we if we want to go back to martial arts briefly, there's there's a, a few karate guys that came to the BJJ class, black belts, teachers, who got absolutely schooled on their first lesson, and, and one of them said that he, he couldn't go back because he couldn't face knowing that he'd wasted his time. Um, wow. And I'm. I was of the opinion that actually, right, if you make a mistake, that the quickest, that the only sensible thing to do is to change course, change direction. And so that's what I did. Um, and that, that burning sensation, that humiliation that you feel is now actually something I recognize and I use. So when, when you start to feel that kind of embarrassment of that your, your ego is being attacked, yeah. that's now a trigger for me to say, all right, am I wrong about this? Do I need to rethink? Do I need to pay attention? Have I run out of arguments? And am I arguing from an emotional basis 
um, I think it's called cognitive dissonance, yeah. rather than actually looking at this situation for what it really is. And is that something that helps you now when you're not just the engineer in the field, but you've got engineers working with you for you and you're setting up teams? Is that what are the sort of that helps you think about creating the safety so engineers can flourish and learn? Um, it's certainly something that I come back to. It's also something that you can see in other people. And so maybe you'll be having similar conversations with people about whatever it is. And it's, it might change your approach and how you speak to them. So um, like going, going in hard with strong arguments when somebody is in that mindset could be the worst thing you could do. Sometimes yeah. you, you need to give people space um, and let them like save any, uh, allow them to save face. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that's, I mean, I, I've been working with a client and they're setting up their, their team uh, and they're doing it all remotely. And I have to say the discipline of the, he's the CTO there to let the team find its way. When I know he's itching, he wants to get in there, but he's letting them find their way. And it's, it takes us, takes a lot to allow that to happen keep the team safe and not make any huge mistakes but allow some mistakes yeah to. yeah um, and that, that seems to me a, a sign of modern well mature leadership yeah and it's i mean there are a lot of factors into that sort of decision so how time critical yeah. is it how vital what what mistakes can you afford to make versus what the cost of not giving people autonomy is and i think one of the things i've i've, I've come to realize is that you never know you never know what what the other path would have been whether things would have been better or not and you can't dwell on it um maybe you can adjust your approach slightly next time and that okay well i'm not going to give that amount of slack next time because i, I don't want to prepare i don't want to pay quite that cost since um and then also how you approach that situation if you were going to to remove the autonomy like explaining the reasoning and and being generally sorry about having to do it and, and so that this is this is the route we're going to take um and let's you know if, if it seems to still be going badly wrong in a in a few months and you you still disagree with it i mean let's revisit it then yeah yeah so I'd like to come back to the uh, network rail uh, and I can imagine, I mean, we're talking about 2006, I think. Yeah. Uh, around, around that sort of yeah, time. Yeah. I can't remember. Um, and I'm just wondering how these rebels managed to turn up in the network rail. Um, <laughs> and, 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 and how they sort of, was it, they were very keen on agile and they wanted to do it or they were high rebels. So I think the, the first thing that gave us a little bit of um, leeway was that we were we were hired by a company which I think is defunct um, called Eocene, yeah. um, who had a proprietary uh, product based on um, oh, I can't think. Oh. <laughs> I can't think of the proper word for it now, but it's essentially a database model that just includes three tables. You, you have an object and you have a relation, and you have an attribute. Yeah. Um, and so I think this came out of, um, prior to this change control of database schemas can be very expensive. Yeah. Now that's an abstract data model. That's, that's one of the things called. And so if you didn't have a concrete data model, if you just had an abstract one where you've got a table called object and a table called relation and a table called attribute, and you put everything into those things, well, you don't need change control of your, your database because it's, it's going to sort out there. Yeah, it's going to support every single set of tables you could ever want for. But I mean, the trouble is it doesn't work. It doesn't scale. It's not performant. It, it, makes you, you you can't reason with the code that you're writing when you when you're doing that sort of thing um, and they had a web framework that, that sat on top of it and so the engineers quite senior um, came in and they they looked at this and even though we we're working for this this company um, they kind of said we, well, we can't build anything like this um, not in any way shape or form and so in actual fact we're going to have to make a lot of these decisions ourselves and, and because this is an American company they didn't have direct oversight Right. And so I think that's probably how we got away with it for a few months without the direct oversight. And because we're from a, um, a third party, nobody paid too much attention until it was too late. And then there was a, a meeting that could have gone either way. And I think by that point, it would have been too much to, to start rewriting. And so we 
um, we didn't use the majority of the the product, right. um, and we we were working quite well with some of the internal customers at that point. Absolutely. So this is actually quite interesting because whenever you hear about transformations, it's always you've got to have sponsorship. You can't do anything from the bottom, or if you can, it's very very limited. And I'm not going to suggest by an agent, uh, by the way, that you you managed to turn network rail or you and your colleagues turn network rail to agile, but. What was the key to sort of success? Was it that relationship with the customer and the show? Um, oh, actually, probably, um, probably the the biggest key was a chap called Ron Ballard. Yeah. Um, and it'd be it'd be a great person to have on a future podcast. He's he's written um, a sort of a, a book about uh, based on he was an Oracle DBA, but also a project manager, and yeah. and he's. Uh, attended conferences and spoken about the experience in Network Rail and how it was one of the most successful projects that they'd ever had, actually delivered things on time and, and quite rapidly. And despite the fact that we were I had laptops and were perched on various tables because there wasn't any any real place for us to work properly for a long time. At one point, we, we were in um, Houston train station. So actually above the platform, there used to be a car park but they, they closed off the car park due yeah. to security threats and they built some porter cabins actually in the car park. So there was no natural daylight. The, the walls were painted the brightest sheen of yellow that you've ever seen in your entire life. A little bit like, um, if you remember the episode of Only Fools and Horses where he gets the luminous paint. It, it was like that. You, you got a headache from just walking in there. And from time to time, you had to leave the building because the diesel fumes from the, the trains below were getting too bad or, or because the Royal train was there and we weren't allowed anywhere near the place. Um, and so I guess, again, the, the slightly crazy working arrangements resulted in a lack of supervision which led to autonomy which actually led to some really good results right got you got you and, and you mentioned tdd did you find that you were self-teaching or did the guys <laughs> oh, no <laughs> so um paul paul beckford i can still hear his voice every single every single time even today i write a test i hear paul beckford saying test that i should do something or other and it, it's just there because he, he pretty much sat on everybody's shoulders and said out loud as he was in the, the exact words that we were to, to type when we were doing it. Um, but yeah, it was, it was revolutionary. If, if you hadn't done it before, the, the difference it made to the, the motivation of, of getting tests to go from red to green, of, of starting with red, um, another little practice that I like that's not monumental but it, I still enjoy it is that like before lunch or at the end of the day you write the failing test that you're going to get passing after lunch or the next day so that you know exactly where you were and, and how to how to start um, and then of course like the, the safety net the regression the fact that it means that you are able to make reasonably sized refactors and, and rather than making the simplest change you, you, you can now make the change which leaves the simplest system um, yeah, it's it made a huge difference to the quality of my code and, and to the performance, the, the speed of, of delivery. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I'm, I've been doing some interviewing recently and we've been asking people about TDD and I'm hearing some very interesting things. So this is, you know, some over a decade later. Hmm. So, yeah, well, I'd like to do it, but I never have the time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then I heard something else that was quite interesting. Or oh, it wasn't encouraged because they didn't want the developers marking their own homework, doing their own tests, which okay. was, a, that was a novel one. I haven't heard, yeah. I haven't heard that before yeah. management, but not from the developer. Yeah, I, I hadn't heard that one. Um, I think the first one's a genuine problem. And yeah. that, that comes back to, um, not that the second one isn't, but the, sorry, the first one's a genuine problem that I've, I've experienced. And it, it comes back to a couple of things. Uh, one that, people don't have the, the space that they need to work with. And if, if you're, if you're saying I, I don't have time to do something, it's either because you don't really want to do it yeah. or, or it's because it's, it's generally you feel some pressure against doing it. Yeah. Um, and that's, both of those are slightly hard. Um, I think I'm, I've always resisted that pressure when I felt it. Uh, because I've seen, and I've known, and I've, one of the things at Deutsche Bank, it was one of the guys there 
they weren't writing tests. They were going very, very fast. And for three months, they were getting glowing reviews from management and I was going slower. And in three months time, they started slowing down. They're, they're, they're part of the application. Um, it, was, it was in a slightly different team than yeah. I was, we were um, pairing. But their application just got full of bugs and there was no way that they could work out I, they, they couldn't there were too many of them and every change brought more and more bugs and eventually the, the person who was a contractor he got let go um and so my my view of this it's very much that you have to take a, a professional stance um my wife's a pharmacist she um so she works with gps all the time the gps are responsible for diagnosis mostly and the pharmacist are responsible mostly for prescription and and so if you look at it from a culpability point of view the gp could write a prescription that was completely inappropriate the pharmacist checks it and if the pharmacist says it's okay then they're 80 percent liable yeah. and and so it's, it's her job to say no and i think there's a degree of that in software engineering where i i I tend to think nowadays the teams we work in, they tend to have a product manager, somebody from UX, and then some kind of uh, technical lead. And I think the technical lead has the majority responsibility for the technical practices. Now, it doesn't mean that you should be absolutely blanket. No, we're never cutting any kind of corners. I don't care what real genuine deadlines there are. But I don't, I don't mind that this product isn't going to ship on time to like some football season is a great, great example. The start of the football season, you can't change that. Yeah. And if you're at the guardian, we had a, an application that was trying to support that it needed to be done by the start of the football season. Otherwise it was going to be useless for another year. Yeah. And so you, you have to take those things into consideration. And you have to try and find some sensible compromise when the pressure is on, but it's still your job to say no. And to say, I'm, I'm not prepared to be responsible for compromising these practices any further than is absolutely necessary. Exactly. Because that leads presumably to the infamous technical debt or which is another business debt, frankly. Yeah. Uh, and you can kill a company with that. Absolutely. And and if you if you are going to make compromises, part of your job then is to at the point when you're agreeing to make them, is to make sure that you've got buy-in on unwinding them. Yeah, absolutely. And um so we talked about you mentioned refactoring. I presume pairing would have been part of the, another that's another one where managers go, mm, two people doing the same job. That doesn't yeah. it it's funny. I've I've never really had so much of an issue with, with pairing. Um it's I mean the, the only issue we had with, with pairing is at AOL we had somebody from health and safety tell us we couldn't pair because there there wasn't enough room at the desks. Oh um, um, and and we were we were set up with with two keyboards, two monitors. Every, everything was was perfect, and we just ignored them. Um, but that's that's the only time anybody has ever complained about. Pairing. For some reason, people seem to get it. I, I don't know why that is. Oh, I think you've had a good run. I think so. I, I've I've seen both. Uh, I've also seen developers not like it actually. Yeah, quite, that's that's true. Um, and I think it's an it's an odd thing because I mean, pairing there's. As one of my friends, I, for some reason, we don't pair well together. We will have a great conversation and we will we'll bounce ideas off each other before um, programming. But we're honestly left after doing that. We're, we're, we're best left uh, to our own devices. <laughs> Other people, it just works very, very, very well with. Um, yeah. And so I think that the times when I've been in teams that have paired most effectively have been with lots of rotation. And this is, this is something that we developed to energize work. Yeah. Um, or if, that evolved at Energize Work, where we we started at AOL. Typically, you'd have a story, and um, actually, actually, sorry, at Network Rail, first of all, people would stay on the same story until it was done. And the trouble is, then the same two people would go to the board and they'd pick off the next ticket and they'd stay on that story till it was done. And you never got to rotate with people. Um, what they were doing at at AOL with Energize Work is you initially would have a story owner. And the story owner might stay, and then the, the second person would rotate through. But the problem with that is that the second person didn't really have any skin in the game. They yeah. um, they could they could coast if they needed to, or sorry, if they, if they felt like it. And so what we started doing is we started rotating the story owner. And so let's say you would you would be the story owner on day one, and I'd be pairing with you. And by day two, I was the story owner, which which meant that I needed to understand enough 
to explain it to the, yeah. the pair the following day. And I thought that worked really, really well. Um, and then we, we took it on one step further from that and we started rotating every three hours. Wow. Um, so, so roughly you know, in the morning and then after lunch. And I think that worked because the team knew each other very, very, very well. And we, and we'd worked together at that stage for several years. Um, I think that, uh, and, and also because we were used to rapid delivery. Um, yeah. I think rotating every, every three hours might be difficult if those things weren't true. Yeah. I, I, I did wonder that, uh, cause when I first heard, I, I heard, uh, someone said every 20 minutes and I thought, <laughs> <laughs> You've got time to sit down and have a cup of tea before you're moving on to the next thing. But um, yeah. you, you hear these things. But this is all the drive to knowledge sharing and quality, isn't it? Uh, yes, I think skill sharing. Um, I think the going going back to what I said earlier, the thing that makes the difference for me is the conversations. Yeah, and so um, there are there are people that I will speak to completely outside of Tes where I'm at at the moment, because I want to bounce an idea off somebody, and having that conversation, you end up often picking a path that you wouldn't have chosen before, and then developing going down that path and developing and then checking in again after a little while, that for me works quite well. Now, if you're pairing all the time, well, that's what you're naturally doing. Um, I struggle a little bit with pairing when it's between people who are of different experience levels, because then it's not really pairing, then it's, it's more on the job training. Right. And that's, that's a different kind of thing. That's a different approach, maybe. Yeah. Um, sorry, not a different approach. That's a, that's a different problem that you're trying to solve. Um, and so I suppose I, you, you mentioned I've been doing this for a while. I've, I've been programming since, oof, probably since I, I started my degree, which would have been, back in 1992, 1993, something like that. Yeah, um, I, I tracked you back to 95. Yeah, so that, that, was, the, that was the placement, yeah. yeah, yeah. And it's, it's something that I love um, extremely. And so I, I would program 16 hours a day while I was at university. I, I would program all the way since then, weekends, evenings on, on pet projects and personal things. So if you think about the, like, the amount of practice and hours that are in there and then professionally as, as well. Um, often if it's, if it's like, <laughs> if you're building a RESTful web application, right, uh, I'm, I'm stronger on the back end stuff than the front end. Probably pairing is, is not going to bring a huge amount of value in terms of uh, the, the coding side of things anymore. The discussion for me at this stage is the thing that I find really valuable. Interesting. Well, you, one of the things you did with, mentioned or you mentioned um was programmer anarchy which i think was when yeah. you moved to the mail online um with fred george um and we haven't discussed that i mean i've heard a lot lately about mob programming from my good friend tom uh, Tom S. but um i like a bit of anarchy it sounds exciting is it exciting um yes it was um it was it was probably one of the, despite being the, the Mail Online, it was, uh, although that, that did have its, its own particular interesting points, um, it was probably one of the highlights of my career. Really? Um, so the, the context there, so, yeah, I suppose I am, naturally I, I dislike uh, authority. Um, I like to be able to do things my own way. Um, generally, I prefer freedom um, to make my own decisions and make my own mistakes. Yeah. And I've been, I've been approached about a job at one of the banks, it might have been Credit Suisse. Yeah. Um, and so I, I, I had an interview and, and the sort of the structure that it were, were set up was the absolute opposite of everything. I, I could just, I could feel myself starting to choke just actually in the, in the interview. Um, and it, it felt like there was, <laughs> there was something like treacle running through my veins. It was just a, a really, un, un... <laughs> not, not, not that I've never worked there, but you know, and I don't mean that they were unpleasant, but the way yeah. things were set up yeah. where everybody was um, doing exactly this thing. Um, was no good for me. So I spoke to the agent, I explained why, um, and he burst out laughing. He was, he was, he was great actually, Matt Farmer. Um, and then 
quite a few months later, he phoned back and said, I think I've got a job for you um, and, and hear me out. And so I was, I was contracting. I, I'd, I'd heard about Fred George. I think Chris Pitts had um, pointed me at some of his, his videos at Forward. And maybe even going back to Network Rail when I'd been such an idiot and thinking that you know, test-driven development and agile was, was a load of tosh. Um, when you hear this guy talk about program anarchy and how you don't need test-driven development and you don't need pair programming, et cetera, well, I thought, well, those things are really important to me. Yeah. I can see I can see that they are an overhead. And so if there's a way of getting the same um, velocity and, and quality and throughput without using them, then it's, it's worth investigating why worth, worth trying to find out. Um, and it was a, it was a permanent job, uh, but they were offering a, a pretty reasonable salary that still made it viable. Yeah. It was completely, I, I live in Ipswich and this was over in, um, oh, I think exactly. Kensington, South, South Ken. Yeah. And so it was a good, at least two and a half, three hour commute yeah. each way. Yeah. Um, but I thought, well, I'm, I'm going to go and see what it's like because I, I like the sound of the anarchy thing. I, I'm, I like the sound of Fred George and, and let's go and, and take a look. Um, and the interesting thing is, so we, we, we did a, a Fred George bootcamp, which was fantastic. And you had some really senior engineers. They had some people from LMAX there as well go through two weeks of this bootcamp. And I was coming out of it with headaches at the end, getting every single, making every single mistake possible. And that was another like learning thing about, I'm, I'm not the software engineer that I, I thought I was because I, I'm just getting shown up right, left and center here. But the stuff that I learned in that bootcamp still stays with me. Um, while I was on it, I used all the principles to write Yadda, which is um, my, my first semi-successful open source library. It gets about 8,000 downloads uh, a month. It's a BDD library for JavaScript, a little bit like Cucumber. Yeah. Um, and the, the sorts of things, so one of the lessons that I learned in that boot camp, and we haven't even touched on program anarchy yet, I'm sorry. Yeah, I'm, I'm um, to know what it is. <laughs> yeah, was, um, so a rule of, a rule of thumb, uh, every time you write an if statement, prick yourself in the finger with a needle, and every time you write an else, cut your finger off. Right? And and that tells you the obviously it's not to be taken literally, but that tells <laughs> you mistakes, it? yeah. But 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 that yeah that that having that nugget in your brain, yeah. right, reinforces that actually those things are bad. Or well, why are they bad? Well, because they lead to conditional logic, and that increases complexity. And and the way you solve that is through polymorphism, and and moving conditional logic as as close to the inputs as you possibly can. Um, and so that, that was one of several lessons that I learned very, very well in, the, in that. And so Yadda, I think, has one else statement in the entire code base, which for something that has to parse um, given when then type um, features is, is, is pretty, pretty interesting. So there was, there was that side of things. Um, and then the, the anarchy piece where it was pretty much, all right, well, we have a bunch of smart people um, who are, we're going to let solve business problems. And uh, we're not going to have project managers or product managers. Um, and so we were, I, I, this, is, this is possibly the worst possible thing. I was working for the Mail Online on their advertising platform. So all those adverts that take over the page, they were, they were kind of the things that I was responsible for. Um, and we would get our, our brief from the commercial um, director or, or what, what sort of advertising products that she wanted um, and it all went through the filter of the, the CTO Clifton Cunningham who I'll, I'll possibly come on to in a little bit later and we're a squad of four people and it was up to us completely how to implement that and what we needed to do and how we wanted to work and how we wanted to organize um, and that side of things was absolutely great we had complete freedom over all the production services of the production servers of the new stack. Yeah. yeah. Um, we could choose the, the technology. Now, yeah, when I say we're free to choose, there was, there was influence. So Clifton, for example, would be, well, I like Node or Ruby maybe. Um, so one of those would be a good choice, Nod. Um, <laughs> Redis, Redis is a pretty appropriate database for this sort of thing as, as well. So you, you, would, you would definitely get the steer. Um, you could always run ideas past him. But in terms of, what sort of process we wanted to follow, whether we wanted to write tests, whether we wanted to pair program, whether we wanted to use continuous integration, continuous deployment, all of those things were left completely up to us. What I, one of the things I, I did find very 
valuable in that experience is uh, my instinct was we, we had two products, a, a sticky banner for mobile, which is something that stays at the top of the screen as you, yeah. as you scroll up and insta- interstitial adverts. So yeah. on the mail online, very image heavy, yeah. you click, uh, opens up a gallery as you swipe through the gallery, every third um, picture could be a, an interactive advert. Yeah. Um, and I wanted to like, deliver one and then the other. Um, because I thought, well, we can get some value to this business sooner like this. And uh, com- uh, the conversation with the commercial director was, no, because it's, it's not a, it's not a strong enough proposition. Our salespeople can't go to Marks and Spencers and just show them a sticky banner. Um, yeah. we, we need something bigger and, and, and more um, impressive than this. And that's, that really taught me that actually something that from one of your earlier podcast from I think 2019 there was somebody talking about you can you you can't necessarily give the business agility through agile practices and that was one of those kind of examples where there's somebody who actually knows a lot about their industry a lot about the sorts of things that are going to sell or not and it's no good taking a um, like a a continuous delivery of of features approach if you can't sell it like that yeah. Uh, you, you might argue maybe you could reorganize the organization to sell things like that, but you've also then got to reorganize your customers uh, yeah. et cetera, or, or find it. So, so I thought that was, that was a good lesson for me. Yeah. Um, <laughs> what, what then happened is that Fred who described himself as a, a hand grenade, a, a disruptive influence had been in there for a little while and, and found another job. So I'd actually, only, I was only there for about three months of experiencing Fred's flavor of the developer anarchy. <laughs> before he you know, off he went to the states to work on um, what he thought was going to be the next sap replacement right. um, i i love the fact um that it strips away all the i'm gonna say buffers all the things between the developer who's doing the real work and the subject matter expert yeah i've got to turn a dollar and it must yeah. be quite because often we hear about agilities the development team is there to solve problems the development team is there to make dreams happen is how I like to think about it. And that very rarely do I actually see that in yeah. what I see abstractions and buffers and I'm going to say delay, but there is no longer yeah. that communication. It's liberating. Yeah. It, it was, it was, it was great. And you, you also get the feedback. It's the same thing at network rail. You, you get the, the feedback of actually seeing the person that is, um, <laughs> that you're doing the work for, be delighted with it um, and be enthusiastic. Um, and I'm, I'm, <laughs> it's just a shame it was adverts. <laughs> Although that makes a terrific amount of money, particularly. Well, yeah. And, and the other thing is, well, while we were there, and they, they just made more and more money because the, like, all the other newspapers were putting up paywalls. And yeah. the effect of the paywall was that it just drove everybody to the mail online. Yeah, absolutely. Um, why are we not seeing that more? Well, that's a good question. Um, I think one, if you look at the difference between XP and Scrum, yeah. Scrum had much better brand management. That's and it. I think Program Ranarchy, if you want to try and pitch it to the organization, no good whatsoever as a, as a title. That's the last thing that, that people want. Um, possibly because, again, the, the, the image is very rebellious. You can throw away tests. Well, in actual fact, we didn't, right? We, we, we looked at whether um, it was, you, know, you try to make a, a good decision on, is it worth the investment of tests? And guess what? 95% of the time it, it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so yeah, we, we wrote tests. I think we, we experimented actually afterwards at, at TES with not writing tests. There was um, the, the idea is that if you're never going to have to change something, and if you can test it successfully manually, and if it's a microservice and it's not very complicated, then why do you need those tests? Yeah. The trouble is you've still got to come back to it sometimes. You can't always just write a completely new microservice. And, and the, the example that drove this home for me is we, we had something doing sitemaps. So yeah. I mean, for anybody who doesn't know, if, if you go to a website and hit sitemap.xml, often you'll get a, an XML document that search engines can use to, um, to work out what parts of your site it should prioritize crawling. Uh, and so the first, the first version of sitemaps we, we wrote at, at TES wasn't test-driven. 
um, it served up an XML document. And then the next time I came to look at it was two years later when people had added a, a lot more sitemaps. And I found out that they, they hadn't, I, they'd violated the spec. Um, things weren't being served in the right format. And they'd grown so complicated that I ended up having to spend about four days rewriting it and adding the tests just to make a very, very simple change. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and there's nothing more frustrating. <laughs> yeah, it's, 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 well, yeah, it's, it's one of the things I also, I learned, right, if, if you want to have the freedom, you've got to gain the trust. Yeah. And the way you get trust is by sustained delivery. It's, it's not by being volatile and peaky. And yeah. so if, if every time you, you go and do what you think should be a simple feature and it ends up taking a random amount of days, maybe, maybe one, maybe six, maybe two weeks if it's particularly bad, then you lose the trust because you're, um, whoever you're doing the work for can't then make, um, can't be confident when they are asked to make a prediction about when is something likely to be ready or how, how long will this feature take, etc. Yeah, yeah. um, and so I think, Test-driven development is one of those things. Any quality practice are the things which enable you to gain trust. Yeah, I think yeah. Well, trust delivery earns trust, and the more you deliver, yes. the more you get trusted. Um, one thing that did occur to me: we were talking about the um, the anarchy, and even actually sort of going back to more say orthodox agile is. I feel perhaps it really exposes the developer, and the better developer probably could cope with it the maybe i'm not i can choose my words carefully mm. uh the ones who are not as strong are more exposed uh where they haven't got that whole waterfall slow pace written down they don't have to deal with the uncertainty in quite the same way and i wonder if we still have a bit of that we need to protect the developers yeah i think that's reasonable um i i think uh you, it's definitely, in actual fact, it can, you can have the same problem on a bigger scale when you get an agile team that are performing and that can then make other teams within the organization look slow and look bad. It's, it's a similar sort of thing, just on a bigger scale. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I was going to ask you about estimating. And That's you talked about that. Um, I, I'm going to go there. Talk to me about estimating because it's the when question is the eternal yeah. horror of developers and yet the light of managers, of course. Yeah. And it's, I think there's, there's a gap. I've been trying to unsuccessfully write a blog post about this. Um, and I think there is a gap between engineering and between areas of the organization that are non-engineering because if I get asked to make uh, an estimate for something. I want to know what somebody is going to do with that information. And it's a little bit like object-oriented programming, right? You, you have private things and you have public things. And and often, actually, the more you keep private, the better, because it, it means that people aren't going to make decisions in their code base uh, or, or, or duplicate. Or, uh, yeah. um, so it's a, it's a little bit like that. Um, and so you've, you've, you've got to be able to trust the person that you're giving the estimate to. Yeah. However, I don't think there's I, I don't think there's necessarily anything inherently wrong with estimates, and I'd be kind of hypocritical if I if I did because if I'm getting work done at home, so I, I had a, a loft conversion done uh, a few years ago, and I needed to know how much it was going to cost because I needed to know one could I afford it? Did I think it was worthwhile? I I would want to know is it going to run into winter? What sort of uh, how long is it going to be open and exposed for all those sorts of things? Um, and so people in other industries will comfortably give estimates. Now, when I, when I put out that, that job, I, I contacted about five different builders. Um, and one of them, right, two of them didn't reply. And three came back all within 10K of each other. Um, and one of them didn't even speak to me, just, just looked at the plans. And so I, I phoned him up and said, well, how can you, how can you, uh, be confident with this is because I do so many of them. Yeah, yeah. I can look at that and I know what it's going to cost. Yeah. And so this, you can take some of that thinking to software engineering. If it's something that you've done something approximately similar to before, well, how long did it take you last time? Yeah. yeah. Um, and the more experience you have, the easier this becomes and, and almost the more flippant you can be. Okay. That's, that's going to be a three month piece of work. Well, that's going to probably going to be somewhere between three and six months. 
and I'm not going to do the work that, that breaks it down. It's only when you haven't done it before or you've done nothing like it yeah. that it becomes really, really, really problematic to, to try to come up with an estimate. Because if you break it down into the component parts and you put them all up together, the number's always too small. Yeah. Um, and so then you might be talking about our oh, finger in the air, this is, this is, this is a year or, or, or that sort of magnitude. Um, yeah, so it's still, obviously it's not a, a perfect answer because sometimes you, want, you will get held to them and that's inappropriate. Like if, if you're doing, if what you're doing is your, like obviously the agile thing, you tune scope, you adjust scope. You, you, you can't, um, you, you don't compromise on quality beyond what we've already discussed. Yeah. You, um, you've kind of, I think it's, it's a little bit misleading to say we've got fixed time because you can actually do more work in the amount of time, depending on how effective you are. You could improve your process. Yeah. Um, you could, add the right people at the right time, not, not at the end of the project when it's too late, but early on so that you've still got a, a good nine, nine to 12 months for them to, to get up to speed anyway. So you, you haven't necessarily got a um, fixed time. Um, but the thing that you've got to be inventive with there is obviously scope. And often there are ways that you can really, really hammer down. And we, we had one example on a, on a, I can't take credit for this. This is a chap called Ruin and, and his product manager, Ben. They, they had a window teaching, Tez is a teaching organization. There are three peaks. There's it's kind of tied to the holidays. So yep. um, teachers are only allowed to move um, schools hand in resignation at, at key points during the year. And so if you want a recruitment product, then you want to get it ready just in advance of that. Yeah. And so they had this date and they had no confidence that they were going to be able to deliver everything they wanted by that time. And so instead of uh, integrating with the Amazon SES and sending emails in an automatic fashion, they, they gave Ben, the product manager, a SQL crew or a Mongo crew to run to get out. And he could run this every day to get out the, the new registrants and actually personally send them an email because all right, it was, it was going to maybe buy us a week, but that was a week that we didn't know that we had. Mm. Um, so you, you can get really, really, really inventive with scope. And that's, that's the way to try to, if you, if you come up with an estimate, I think that this thing um, can take, is going to take six months, give or take, then you can try to make that true by getting really aggressive with the scope. Yeah, absolutely. Scope is always, well, for me, is the thing to be looking at most carefully. Um, and you didn't mention points or stories once. Oh, yeah. So, again, I, I mentioned that Energized Work has a, uh, had a, with the same team, we could evolve. And where we started with was story points, same as most people. Um, and what we found in our, in our planning games that we used to have them once a week on a Wednesday, uh, Wednesday morning, we would argue too hard about the first few stories because we all had lots of energy and by the end of it it was yeah whatever just yes okay um and what we found is that anything that had a large number tended to grow so if we said we think something's going to take six days it would take 12. Yeah. if we said something was going to take three days it might take six but the smaller the number you got like two days often would take two or two and a half and nobody cares about that that difference and so instead of saying how long is it going to take we started saying does this take two days or less? Uh, and now some stories you can't actually fit into two days or less. And so it just, it was a trigger. If it takes two days or less, fine. Yes. Move along. We don't care about it anymore. We'd have the conversation about what, what was required, but if everybody said two days or less, move, move along. When stuff went over two days, that's the time for extra scrutiny. Yeah. Now where we developed then a step further was to say, is, is this story as small as it can reasonably be while still delivering something of value? Mm. And the answer to that, if it was no, we can split it, we split it. If it was yes, then we, we put it no matter how, how long we thought it would take. Um, and so, but that would again, I think was only feasible with a, a, an experienced team that had worked together for, for a number of projects. That's a really, um, I like the way that, to some degree you just let the stories in and you say right okay small doable big split it up didn't didn't just let them in like we we would thoroughly talk them through yeah um but i think that the, the the real lesson perhaps for companies who want to 
really get the best out of their development team is let them be a team for a while and expect it to, to, yeah. to mature. Um, so there's no freeze there, is there? No freeze, sorry. There's no free. There's no free quick shortcut. To oh, it. oh no, of course not. Of course not. Yeah. Um, and I think um, we haven't, we haven't yet touched on the subject of remote working, which is something which is quite, quite prevalent at the moment. And one of the things that somewhat relates into this is that it's, uh, we've, we've been doing remote working at TES for several years now. Yeah. Um, and it means and, I, and I'm, I'm not, I like remote working, but I'm not particularly a fan of some of the compromises that you end up making. To yeah. and, and one of those is that we tend to now, at least in, in my, my squads, we have very heavily specified tickets. And so lots of information, lots of documentation. It's not just acceptance criteria. Stories used to be the start of a conversation. And now they, they end up being a little bit of, this is everything that we think you would need to know, but still look at it and make your own decisions. Um, when you come and part of that is because we have people in different time zones you don't know who's going to pick up what when um, so without that extensive context um, then there might not be anybody available to um, answer questions yeah. and I think that's it's a shame and it kind of relates into that there's, there's still the amount of thought that the conversation used to provide but now it ends up being done at story writing time. Yeah, yeah. Stephen, we've been talking and we've hit the <laughs> six o'clock mark and I did promise that uh, I would let you get to your dinner. Thank you so much. It's been, I love just the earthy, it's real and what you actually did. And I think it's, uh, I hope there's lots of developers listening going, oh, I like that, I like that. I hope they picked something up. Um, thank you so much for your time and 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 i'm going to check down uh ron i might put a yada link in as well uh yeah well. and uh maybe a youtube fred fred in action fred george video in action thank you so much for your time and hopefully we get to speak again maybe i'll get some other engineers in with you and we, we can talk about some other subjects thank you so my much my pleasure my thank pleasure you. thank you very much cheers then